I was thinking last week, Monday, I think it was Monday, maybe it was Tuesday morning, sitting and I was, as I was looking ahead in the book of Job for this final, uh, um, final message in chapter 42 of this series in Job, Can I Trust God? Which is really the question. It's not a matter of why is this happening. Oh, the stuff is going to happen. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. But the book of Job reinforces the answer to the question, can I trust God? Or where do I go? What can I, who can I trust in in the midst of these kind of things? As I was thinking last week, we, we, we were reminded in chapters 38, 39 that God is, God is working in even the midst of the small stuff, the stuff, the, the little things near and far that we, wouldn't even, we, we would even forget about. God is working there. God is sovereignly in control of these things. Not to mention God is control, in control of the biggest forces that are at work on earth, like Bohemoth is an example of that. Not only that, but God is the one who is able to sovereignly control the greatest spiritual evil who stands against us to destroy us. Um, I, I um, described here, I understood that Leviathan is that great dragon, the serpent of old, as he's referred to in Scripture. But Job had an advantage on us, it would seem. The Job, in the midst of his troubles, yes, his troubles were severe, and we do not seek to sign up for those. But in the midst of those troubles, after the not-so-encouraging counsel of his three friends, and uh, the young man, Elihu, actually doesn't do too bad in his words of wisdom, but then Job gets to hear from God himself that God speaks to Job. And I was thinking, perhaps it was early Monday morning, I was thinking, what if God were to speak to me in that way, so directly? The way that God spoke to Job, would God ever speak to us? And it occurred to me, I started taking some notes I wrote these things down. I hope you sometimes reflect a little bit over the, over the, over the Sunday message a little later in the week. I, I, I do. And I jotted this down and wanted to share it with you. So if I could dip into last week just briefly as we move on to the end of the book of Job. Would God ever talk to us the way that he spoke to Job? in chapters 38 to 41, because this also relates to would God restore us the way that he restores Job? Would God talk to us this way? Well, I want you to imagine a time when you have been brought low in trouble. You don't know why God has allowed this. You don't know why he has not answered your prayers to change it, to rescue you out of it. God, in the midst of this trouble, seems more distant, and your faith and hope also have a new calloused distance to them. But then, in the midst of your ash heap, it is as if the Spirit speaks to your spirit. And you are given a new realization of how God is working in the world. God is working in lives and in circumstances around you in ways that you cannot Ways that you easily overlook. There's chapter 38 and 39. That from somewhere, and maybe it's a psalm that you 
turn to out of mere habit or discipline, but you turn to a song and maybe there you've been reminded again that God not only controls the greatest of earthly obstacles or behemoth, but he also controls the fearful and terrible spiritual beast who would eagerly devour you if it were not for God's sovereign and gracious hand. Somehow from the gloom of your ash heap, the Spirit of God awakens your hope and confidence in him to a whole new level. Now you see it clearer than you did before. The great sovereign of the universe has eternally saved you and is purposely using and shaping you even through this trouble. And he is preserving you for the eternal glory that he has ready for you. You see, the story of Job is not just Job's story. God does speak to us by his spirit and through his word into our spirit. He speaks to us as clearly as he did to Job. You hope it doesn't take bankruptcy and tragic deaths and traumatic illness to get there, yet we are confident of this because God has told us so, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed in us and that these comparably light and temporary afflictions are producing in us, because he has told us they are, they are producing us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory by God's Spirit. My point is that Job had a now-I-see-it moment when God himself spoke to him. But that's not merely Job's privilege. That is our privilege as his children. By his spirit and through his word, we too have a now I see it moment because God himself speaks to us. And so we turn to his word this morning. And we ask again, God, would you speak to us from your word? Would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things of you and what you have for us from your word? I want to invite you to stand again as we read from Job 42. Now, why do we stand as we read? This is God's word that God is speaking to us. If, if, if everything else I say gets in the way, you have a clear word from God. And we stand to hear from God, and we'll talk about it together. Job chapter 42 and verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job... The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. 
And they showed him sympathy, and they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the names of the first, name of the first daughter Jemima and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karen Hapuch. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Father, we thank you that you do speak to us. We thank you that we have the privilege to hear from you, that our perspective can be so illuminated, so changed. And so, Father, speak to our hearts again this morning. Might your Spirit do your work within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I've entitled chapter 42, or the remainder of chapter 42, as the restoration of all things. This is what we long for. In the midst of the brokenness that's around us, in the midst of the realities of the frailty of human life, as we know it, within a world that is under the curse of sin, we long for a restoration. Peter uses that phrase when he is speaking to Israel and when he is inviting them to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, as their Savior, the one whom heaven must receive, who waits in heaven until he returns, until his advent his coming again, and the restoration of all things when he comes. We long for that day to be together with the Lord in his kingdom and in his eternity. We long for that, the restoration of all things. And the book of Job closes on that note, and it's with purpose. That in, for sure, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. In Job chapter 42, we, we see this restoration, and it's, and it's described for us in very human, very everyday in Job's day terms, but there's two things I want you to notice in it. One of those things is that real restoration is based on the gospel. Real restoration is, is, is experienced through the gospel, and thus the gospel, even from us then to others, is the pathway to restoration with God, restoration with others. So in this closing book of Job, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the loss, in the midst of that restoring of those things, we're going to see the gospel, because that's the basis of it all. Not only that, but in seeking restoration of others, Job finds his own restoration. That we, having been restored to God, we are to lean into that restoration for the sake of others around us. In fact, as we, as we lean into the restoration of others, there 
we will actually taste. There we will experience all the more God's restoring of us. We'll see these as we go. First of all, real restoration is based on the gospel. Look at the first handful of verses, verses 7 to 9. This is the restoration of Job's friend. You would think that first of all, Job would be restored, Job would be vindicated, and out of that his friends would see it and they would be returned as well. They would have their thinking straightened out, seeing God restore Job. It doesn't happen that way. God first sets out After Job's confession, it's like God just moves on. Job doesn't even respond further, at least in the storyline, to Job's confession. He moves on and he addresses the three friends who still must be hanging out in the vicinity somewhere. We haven't heard from them in a while, which we're glad for. That part wore us out. But here they are again, and we're surprised that God speaks to them first. Job gets it right. So God speaks to his friends. Hmm. Well, what what he says to them, he says to Eliphaz, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And he goes on and tells them what they're going to have to do because, and he repeats the same line again. This line is important. When you see something that is reported word for, or repeated rather, word for word like that, that's important. We're supposed to take notice of that. It's a serious thing they have spoken wrongly of God. Now we turned to that line before because that helped us to not put too much stock into what they said between chapters 3 and 27 as we went through that cycle of their wisdom and Job's response and their wisdom and Job's response. And a wearisome cycle it was, but we knew going in, be careful what you listen to here because they're, they're wrong. They're wrong about God. And God seems to take that very seriously. It's a serious thing to speak wrongly about God according to what we think God to be like or what we assume God must be doing in the life of somebody else. God calls it folly. If you dare to speak for God, you better have God as your source. You better be ready with footnotes. You better be ready with chapter and verse that I know I'm representing God rightly here. You see, Job's friends were sincere as they talked about God to him. They were sincere, they stayed with him, they hung on, they meant well, but they were wrong. Like those prophets in Deuteronomy 18 who presume to speak for God, but actually lead people astray concerning God. And Moses has a strong warning against them. But I meant well, they might say. But Paul says in Romans 10 and verse 2 that you can have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You can be very zealous for God towards others and yet not be representing Him rightly. And so we want to learn one more thing from these three friends about what they got wrong as they spoke about God. Now, first of all, a reminder that it's important in verse 8, there's a, there's a pretty significant sacrifice. So seven bulls and seven rams. Now, this is not just seven cows and seven sheep. These, this is breeding stock. They are to sacrifice not only these expensive animals at the day, but they're sacrificing 
their next generations as well that would come from these bulls and rams. This is a costly sacrifice that they're giving. In fact, it's the same sacrifice that the whole nation is to give. This sacrifice will represent the nation during the seven days of the Passover as described by Ezekiel. It's the same weighty sacrifice that Hezekiah will offer for the cleansing of the temple after the idolatry from his father. The weight of their guilt is not merely carelessness in speaking. They, in some important way, they got God completely wrong. And that's what we don't want to miss here. By insisting that God operated solely in retribution, they misrepresented God as a cold judge. Focus on justice and obedience, merely. They forget that God is a loving and gracious God of mercy and forgiveness as well as justice. When God introduces himself, when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, what is it that God shows him? What is it that's going to strengthen Moses in knowing God to take this rebellious people on a journey through the wilderness? What will strengthen Moses for that task? God reveals, he said, you can't take it all in. You couldn't take it all, Moses. I will just give you a glimpse of my glory. And this is what it was in Exodus 34. This is an important, essential description of God. That whatever else you think about God, you must know this. If you miss this, you do not know him. You describe a God, but not rightly, as my servant Job has. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The Lord is a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And we say, but wait, wait, how do we put those two together? How does he then by no means clear just ignore the guilt if he is so merciful and gracious and forgiving? Because he himself bears our sin and our iniquity. But that God presents himself to Moses, even after the incident of the, of the golden calf, God presents himself to Israel as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and transgression. I want to ask you this. When you think about God and you think about your standing before Him and you're doing business with God, tomorrow morning or the next, do you think of God as you approach as merciful and forgiving or as fearful and judging? God is fearful but he wants you to know him in his mercy. That is our only approach. And that is what they miss. And by forgetting that, they therefore let Job forget it too. In contrast, Job has claimed that God does not merely govern the world by retribution, by justice. And Job's right there. He's, he means it as a complaint. He, Job is almost arguing for justice when, oh, don't do that. We do not want God's justice. We want God's mercy. I do not want to stand before God on the basis of his justice concerning my guilt. 
I want to stand before him on the basis of his mercy toward me because of Jesus. But in Job's complaint, he put his finger on this truth that God is more than a divine policeman. And if your understanding of God is a divine policeman who has got a book and there's a list of all those things that you should not do, and you're in trouble if you do some of those things, you do not know God's character. You have a caricature of God that perhaps greatly distorts some of his attributes and ignores others. The friends in asserting retribution, they declare a theology that is hostile actually to God's character. It's not just a little thing, oh, I'm going to over-index on this side instead of that thing. You miss God's mercy, you miss God. It's that serious. Be careful in our efforts to make sense out of what God is doing that we may redefine or limit God in his ways, in ways that God does not like. Now, how are they restored? How are these friends from such grave error, how are they restored? They're restored, quite simply, through a sacrifice for their sin, and by the mediator or the intercession of another. There is one who would intercede for them. There is a mediator between them and God. In this case, his name is Job. And they are to come bringing a sacrifice for their guilt. They are to come with a sin offering. And other innocent sacrifices in their place for their guilt. And as they go to Job with these sacrifices, how do you think that plays out? Now, Job is still sitting over there on his ash heap, scraping away at his sores with his potsherd, his piece of broken pottery. And as there he sits on his ash heap, his friends come and they have a sacrifice and they're going to say, Job, please take our sacrifices and offer these sacrifices and pray for us. Job, would you please serve as our, as our priest in this moment? Well, there's a little more explaining they've got to do. God has sent us to you. God has told us that we have not spoken rightly as you, God's servant Job, has they have got to confess to Job that they were wrong, that he is right, that he is God's accepted servant, and they are not. And they stand guilty before God, and they need the sacrifice, and they need Job to intercede for them. There's a lot packed into this little episode. And it's meant to remind us of something. It's meant to point us to something. There's a picture here that we're supposed to see. They need to confess, and they need Job to pray for them. Here, in this moment, Job is given, I think, his greatest privilege yet. This is even better than God from heaven saying, Have you considered my servant Job? blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. Look at Job. Job's, Job's outstanding among men. This is a greater privilege than that. Because here, Job portrays to his friends and probably to all of heaven that is captivated by this ongoing drama. Here, Job has the opportunity to display Jesus. Job is the acceptable priest. Job is the one who for his friends can intercede, can pray for them before God, whose prayer will be heard and they will be forgiven. Job 
portrays Jesus to them and to us. There's no greater privilege than that. It says in verse 9, The Lord accepted Job's prayer for them, just as he accepts Jesus' intercession for you. Hebrews 7 and verse 25, speaking of the Lord's death for us and his resurrection and being raised from the dead never to die again, it says he ever lives. He continues living to always make intercession for us. That he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. As Jesus makes intercession for us, Job is invited to make intercession for his friends. Job gets to be as Jesus before them. You and I have that same honor. God has, God having worked his wonderful work, his greatest work of reconciliation of humanity back to himself in Jesus as our Savior, God has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. God has committed to us, into our hands, into our mouths, the word of his reconciliation. So that we, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Declare to others around us, be reconciled to God. God has given to us the gospel. God has sent us to go. God has sent us to plead with them. God has sent us to, as Job here, pray for them. We have the opportunity. As Job is told to pray for his friends while he's still on his ash heap, yet Job does not yet know of his own restoration. That has not happened yet. What will Job do? His friends come along and say, hey, Job, you know, yeah, we were kind of harsh on you, but would you pray for us now? As Job sits still on his ash heap in the midst of his suffering, what would you do? Maybe, maybe Job's response would be asking God to treat them the way that they have harshly judged him. That would be fair. And Job's about fairness, Right? They like retribution, right? But no. Instead, Job, sitting on his ash heap, prays for them. Perhaps something like, Father, please forgive them. For they didn't know what they were doing. Job gives us an example. In leaning into the restoration of others, Job gives us an example to follow even from our own ash heap. In the midst of our troubles, we dare not so focus on ourselves that we don't have room or inclination to see the need of people around us and say, Oh Lord, how would you use me to restore them back to yourself? Our, cult our culture urges us to be so focused on ourselves that we don't have time or energy for the needs of people around us. Job's example suggests something different, that we need to lean into restoring others. In fact, James, 
It's a passage we often understand just in the meads when, when, when one is sick and needs to be healed. We call for the elders and they pray. And, and this section concludes with this statement. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Could it be that part of our own healing, part of our own restoration is wrapped up like Job's in our prayer for the restoration of others? I don't know. We're in an Amazon culture. We think we get what we ask for for ourselves. What if God restores to us while we're busy asking for the restoration of others? What if Amazon isn't quite the model of how God works? As Job leans in, verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice what he had before. Maybe the who, the restoring of the friends, is again more important than the what. In this case, the restoring of of that which Job had lost. The text clearly connects Job's prayer and their reconciliation to the restoration of Job's peace, Job's shalom, all the goodness of life that Job had lost. Now, in some way that's hard to untangle, the same is true for us. Our forgiveness is wrapped up in and connected to the forgiveness of others. Our forgiveness, or perhaps the realization and the understanding of our forgiveness, is connected to how we forgive others. For instance, in understanding that we have been forgiven, there, out of that forgiveness, that frees us to forgive others. And obedience in forgiving others then leads us into, especially when that forgiving of someone else comes at some cost to me, I give up the right to hold that against them. I give up the right to claim damages. I let it go. I release them. And in forgiving others, I taste something of what it cost for God in Christ to release me of the damages owed, to not hold my guilt against me, me accountable for it. And in understanding, through obeying in forgiving, I understand my forgiveness even more. And what does that do? That frees me then to forgive even further somebody else around me. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven us, forgiven you. Matthew 6.12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I do not earn God's forgiveness by forgiving, but I do understand how I've been forgiven by extending that forgiveness to others. Now, in verse 10 as well, there's a, there's a restitution command that's alluded to. It says that the Lord restored to Job double. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. There's a hint there, too, the principle of restitution in the Old Testament, that if you had stolen a cow from, from your neighbor and you put it in with your herd, oh, he won't miss this one. 
and, and is found in your herd. You have to give the cow back. You haven't eaten it yet, fortunately. So you can give the cow back and you can restore it, but you have to give another cow as well. You have to restore twice what was taken. And now, God doesn't do the taking here. God allows Satan, certainly. God is sovereignly in charge, and God allowed Satan to touch Job in all of these ways. And yet, Satan himself is the one who rushes in, eager to destroy, thinking he will prove his point. And yet, God is the one who restores to Job double everything which the enemy had stolen from him. God restores double, and we're, we're given the, the whole list of it here. As we look at the blessings that are restored to Job, well, first of all, there's the comment as well, and it's almost thrown into the side that his, his brothers and sisters and all who had known who had known him and ate bread with him, they're restored back into relationship with him. Again, the relationships are put ahead in the passage of the stuff. This chapter is not about Job's stuff, although it's carefully cataloged. That for another reason. But the relationships are restored. Even those brothers and sisters who in chapter 19, they had withdrawn from him. His close friends, even his own family, have withdrawn. That's why it's so surprising that those three, we're hard on those three, but at least they showed up. Everybody else withdrew, even his own siblings. It was awkward. He had lost so much, they didn't know what to say. They asked how he was doing, and he said, terrible. And so they didn't have anything more to say, so they just sort of drifted off and talked to somebody else. You know, when I ask you how you're doing, you're supposed to say, fine. Everybody knows that, right? You're not supposed to say, well, actually, it's been a really hard week. Oh, well, now I've got a choice to make. I can go flit off to somewhere else and have fun, or I can say, well, what was hard? Tell me about it. But what, you, what is needed is to come near. But know this, it's easier to withdraw when difficulties come. And so know this, others are going to withdraw, so you and I need to be the ones to press in. When you see somebody in trouble, don't withdraw, even though that's, the first, that's your first knee-jerk response, because that's everybody's response. But we're the ones following Jesus to go to the need rather than shy away from it. And now we get to the point of the doubling. This is the fun part. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job in verse 12 more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. 14,000, that's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of wool. What do you do with that? How many sheep did Job have before? 7,000, if you remember. If you don't remember, just go back to chapter 1. He had 7,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. That's a lot of camels that he had 3,000 before. 1,000 yoke of oxen, he started with 500. 1,000 female donkeys, he started with 500. Everything has doubled, and we're supposed to know it. We're supposed to be reminded here that God will restore and not just give back, not just return. Remember Jesus talked about a full measure pressed down and overflowing. God will not cheat you. You can count on it. God can be trusted. I can trust him in the midst of my troubles. I can trust him with whatever I lost. I can trust him with whatever sacrifice he calls me to make. It will be worth it all. God will restore double what has been lost. 
And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And the whole thing comes screeching to a halt here. Because how many children did Job have before? Seven sons and three daughters. And he ends up with seven sons and three daughters. He doesn't double the children. Do female donkeys matter more? That's probably not the lesson we're supposed to come away with. So why does he not double the children? Well, the donkeys, when they're dead, they're gone. The oxen, when they're dead, they're gone. The camels, when they're dead, they're gone. But the children... Do you remember David at the loss of his little infant son? He says, I will go to the child one day in the future, but the child will not come back to me in this life. But I will go to the child one day in the future. And I think the reason everything is so carefully doubled is not because we care and we want to know how many donkeys does Job end up with. The reason everything is doubled, God restored double all that Job had had before, and he doesn't double the children. Is Well, first of all, we cannot replace those that are lost. And yet those that are lost to him for now, he has not actually lost. Those who will be with you in God's kingdom forever are not lost to you. You're separated from them. And haven't you heard people talk about longing for the day They lost their spouse some time ago, and they're longing for the day when they too will depart from this life and its troubles and sorrows, and they will be reunited with their loved one. And yet there's a problem there. We can get... We can get to the point that our idea of God's future for us in his heaven is a family reunion. And there we all are around the Thanksgiving table. And that itself is such a weak caricature of our future. The scripture reminds us that we are not forever separated from those that we have lost in this life. Both 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, around about Round about verse 15 describes it. We who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep in death. That the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remaining will be caught up together with them and we will meet the Lord in the air and then forever with all of our family we will be. That's not how it ends. It says then forever With the Lord, we, the whole families reunited, will be. Our greatest joy and delight in God's future will not be reunited finally with mom or dad or brother or child. Our greatest joy will be together in His presence. And yet, for Job... He's given 10 more 
There's another way that we see this, the same truth. We're reminded of it again. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says the same thing. We will not all sleep in death, but we will all be changed, those who are alive and those who already sleep in death. We will all be changed. All those who are in Christ will be reunited in his presence. But there's one other place where we see this. Job lives a rich and full life. In verse 16, Job lived 140 years and he saw his sons. And he saw his sons' sons. Four generations. Well, how many generations are described there? There's Job. There's Job's sons and his daughters, same generation. And then there are his sons' sons and presumably his daughters' sons and daughters. That's three generations by my count. Now you could say, well, Job's going to live 140 years. He's going to live long enough to see even the son's son's kids as well. His, his great-grandchildren. Well, maybe. You can go with that. That's certainly a viable way to read it. I like mine better. There's Job's generation. There's Job's first generation of children. All of them are taken away but not lost. There is Job's second generation of children, and there is Job's grandchildren. Four generations. Let me do it that way. That's easier. My thumb's hanging out there. Four generations. The ones that were taken from him have not been lost. And in the midst of a very hard loss, that's encouraging. It doesn't take away the pain of the now. I, I, I understand that. And yet, it does remind us that that little one, maybe we had for way too short of a time, is with the Lord, safe in the arms of Jesus, and will share with us in worship with him. Worship of him forever. You see, what's described in verse 16, Job lived 140 years, saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. What we have arrived at in chapter 42 is meant to be better than we started with in chapter 1 and 2. That's what's described here. That we have, Job begins with life is good. Everything is as it should be. Low. Job is living relationally with his friends and neighbors and with his children. And before God, Job is living God's shalom and God's inheritance. And then, with the, with the intrusion of that great dragon and serpent of old, the devil, with his lies and accusations, shalom is disrupted. And calamity befalls. And Job continues through life in this calamity until the point where God restores him again. Better than before. More than was lost. And Job is returned at the end of the book. Job is returned to shalom. The fullness of life. Everything as it should be with God and with his children, with his family, with his neighbors, even with his three miserable comforter friends. Everything restored. And everybody with a fuller understanding of God and His mercy than they had before. 
It's better than before. And what we're supposed to see in this little story of Job is God's big story of redemption from garden to garden. You see, we begin in a garden over here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and everything is good. And Adam and Eve walk with, walk with God in the cool of the day, and some of your favorite part is they were naked and unashamed, and there they were. It's a glorious life of peacefulness with God in his garden. Life is good. They are experiencing the fullness of blessing, God's shalom, God's peace in life. And then the devil comes in with his lies and his accusations. And he disrupts it and calamity ensues and chaos comes. And life is broken and miserable and sin has entered in and brings with it death and all of this loss and thorns and thistles. And on it goes through 66 books until we get to Genesis, or rather Revelation 22. And there we are again after the coming of Jesus and his restoration of all things, we are back again in a garden with God, and yet we in humanity, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Son of God himself, and we in him are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, we have been lifted to an either even higher standing than we had before. God has restored to us by Revelation 22 more than what was lost in Genesis Chapter 3. In Job's restoration, we are to see something of, of God's coming restoration that you and I also long for. And it will be. We can lean already into that promise, that reality. We can lean already into that coming restoration, which is based wholly on the gospel of a sacrifice offered for us, of an intercessor provided for us, and his name is Jesus. And because of him, on the basis of Christ, we can lean into that coming restoration. Is there somebody that you need to forgive? Is there somebody that you need to step into your own forgiveness more fully by forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you? Is there some loss that you need to let go of and trust that God will somehow make it right? That God will provide for you, that God will take care of you, that God will meet you, and that God will somehow restore this loss? It will be worth it all. Can you trust God with that? Is there someone in loss or grief that you need to draw near to with love and comfort? Not necessarily dropping right away all the happy, blissful thoughts about what it will be someday because they're not in that someday, they're in this day, and this day is terrible. But will you be in it with them? even if you don't have anything to say yet, but to draw near and to bear one another's grief and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Will you look in the midst of life and its troubles and its brokenness and its injustice, will you let those things witness to you of God's coming restoration, that there is satisfaction in nothing else other than Him, that 
you will rejoice in him with those you have been separated from temporarily, even in death, so that the, the troubles of this life do not ruin you. Instead, they press you to, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully, not on the blessings of this life, but to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revealing of Jesus Christ. And when we get to Genesis 19, 20, 21, 22. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you steer our hearts toward what is ahead? Father, would you strengthen our confidence in what you've already done for us in Jesus? And Lord, that restoration that you have already bestowed upon us in relationship with you because of Jesus, our sacrifice, our intercessor. Lord, would you would you strengthen us, Lord, to be your agents of restoration to people around us? Lord, that in this brokenness, one thing we share humanly with others is that we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of you, our Savior. Father, help us then to, to hold our Savior out to people around us, to pray for them that they too might experience your restoration. And Father, give us, give us a hope that doesn't find our fulfillment yet, but trusts you in the midst of the present, that trusts you for our fulfillment forever. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.